It was only a few years ago that organic cannabis growers were rare. Everybody was still on the bottle, giving their plants synthetic inputs instead of whole foods. Now, though, there are a whole lot of people in the scene who are growing and thinking more holistically about the plant and realizing that our job as cultivators is more to promote good soil and rhizosphere health than it is to force feed the plant nutrients, and that it's better for us to work intimately in cooperation with nature than try to bend her to our will to create flowers. It's cool that growth store staff are educating themselves too, where once everyone was talking hydro, more people are talking myco. Natural farming is the oldest and now again the newest and best way to grow beautiful, aromatic, healthy, and high-yielding food and cannabis. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you a new podcast episode every time they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items for the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. We have an extra giveaway again this episode because we are moving into home gardening season. Our friends at Dynomyco asked me to help them give away several hundred retail-sized bags of their endomycorrhizal inoculant. You'll hear more about their great product during the first commercial break. But for now, I just want to give you the URL of dynomyco.com forward slash shaping fire. That is a link to their page on their site where they are collecting addresses to mail out these samples for absolutely free. This is a very popular soil starter, so do not delay in filling out the form at dynomyco.com forward slash shaping fire. If your company budgeted thousands of dollars for cannabis conventions in 2020, which are now all canceled, I invite you to consider moving your marketing investment to Shaping Fire. For only a fraction of what it would cost you to attend just one convention, you can advertise for nearly a year on Shaping Fire. It has been a busy week as other companies have reached out to Shaping Fire because their whole year of customer outreach events was just canceled, and they are scrambling for new ways to reach their customers. The audience for Shaping Fire is made up of curious and enthusiastic cannabis enthusiasts, entrepreneurs, and home growers, and you can reach them for less than the price of a postcard each. Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out more. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. Today, my guest is certified Korean natural farming instructor, Drake. I asked Drake about his one name name, and he explained that Drake is actually his middle name, Eric Drake Weinert. I decided to include that because I can't be the only one wondering about his name. Drake is the most certified instructor of KNF in the United States. He's been studying Korean natural farming for over 10 years and is certified by Master Cho. He hosts a podcast called Microbial Secret Society that is established on KNF ideals, but then goes in every direction covering really interesting topics. Today on Shaping Fire, we're going to talk about wildcrafting and fermentations in both natural and urban environments, some ideas for collecting IMO under less than ideal circumstances, and in the third set, we ask Drake a bunch of questions that Shaping Fire audience sent us in to ask him. Welcome to the show, Drake. 
Hey, aloha, Shango. It's great to be with you. Awesome, man. Thank you for sharing some of your valuable time with us. I know farm life is uh, exceptionally busy, so I'm glad that you're able to join us for a while. So let's get started by setting some context. You know, a lot of folks um, focus on the na- uh, Korean natural farming recipes only. And many folks don't consider what I would say is a bigger picture of what natural farming, and in this case, Korean natural farming really is. Because of that, I see lots of people doggedly following recipes but without a deeper understanding, for example, of why we use the, the fresh new growth tips on plants when making fermented plant juice. So, so each aspect of KNF fits into this larger overall framework or philosophy of working with nature instead of against it. Will you tell us a little bit about how you envision the holistic aspect of this sort of farming thought? Well, if you, yeah, I, I will. And if, if you look at my, um, the way I've been kind of translating and, and bringing the aspects of Korean natural farming into a Western language and also Western mindset has been going at these solutions. Um, and, and largely I've, I've kind of, um, helped, helped out by isolating it down to nine core solutions where there's many more solutions than this, but by, by getting it down to nine, those are the essentials you need to grow to, to get, you know, the basics of everything. And I've really been working on the language of how these things are translated. So when Korean natural farming came over from Korea into the the Western world and, and largely the, the first place it entered was Hawaii, um, it came with a lot of jargon. So you, you have FPJ, FFJ, LAB, OHN, and if, if someone's brand new to this, it's, it's they have to absorb not only the, the jargon, you know, it's, it, but, but understanding the intricacies of each recipe. And so, so what I've been doing is I've been translating the recipes, not, not changing them by any means, but just um, ch- translating them differently. So instead of, for instance, calling um, fermented plant juice, fermented plant juice, which is kind of the way it's made, you ferment plant juice. But instead, I've been renaming it to be like Korean natural farming food. Because then when you go to apply these things, if you go like, you know, when should you use fermented plant juice? It's kind of a mystery. But if I ask you, when should you use food? It becomes pretty darn clear, like when you're when your plant is hungry, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so largely that's that's what I've been doing with with these recipes is is um, de-jargoning them and translating them in a way that it, it helps to make it more intuitive so that people going to jump in and they want to use these things and they want to find like how do these components fit together? If it's just jargon and you don't understand, you kind of have to blindly follow recipes or trust these other things. But once the language is there where you can conceptually understand things, where you say, okay, fermented plant juice is food, then you can understand, well, if my plant looks really well fed, maybe I don't need as much food. And you can start to understand like how the components, the, the individual recipes actually build a full farming system. I like that approach. And, and honestly, it's a different approach than I thought you were going to give me. Um, when I asked the question, I thought you were going to give me actually more like highfalutin philosophy because, you know, so often philosophy is where um, vocabulary 
often gets its meaning, right? But you actually went the other way with it, which um, I find kind of juicy. The fact that you're all like, well, listen, let's let's make the the words we use to talk about this process that we're doing let's let's take it out of some of the jargon that may be traditional but which kind of sterilizes the process and and kind of devoids some of it of direction or meaning and so let's let's rebrand it in more useful ways so that it gives a different kind of context and that sounds really that sounds really attractive do you find that um either yourself or yourself to your students or your students after your classes, that they have challenges using your new vocabulary when say other people's on the other people on a, on an internet thread, maybe using the traditional Korean shorthand. Well, I, 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 I do both. Right. I, I try to, I try to teach, you know, like, like, conceptually like when you when you understand i mean the, the way i call things it's like food medicine cleanser structure reproduction all those words just it, it it takes the mystery out of how do you use it but but at the same time you need backwards compatibility right so you still need to know like okay medicine is ohn which stands for oriental herbal nutrient which when i go on the forums and things and i go on the internet i find people will say yeah but what about my ohm M being like M, there's no OHM, you know, but they're thinking oriental herbal medicine. They're not thinking oriental herbal nutrient, how it was in the original text. But but with my experience, what, what I've seen is the first translations of Korean natural farming were kind of arbitrary. And, it, and, it, and they just, you know, decided to call something fermented plant juice in the English translation. But if you go to Master Cho and he's talking about it, what he's actually saying is he calls it green juice from heaven. <laughs> okay, but but that's not in the books. We don't we don't use our uh, G J F H. You know. <laughs> but but then but but in the English translation, all of a sudden we got F P J, and then that becomes our jargon. And so I so I realized this through the translation that there there wasn't like a ton of thought put into how they were naming things. In, in, in across languages, it's not even the same. So when we in America, all of a sudden we pick up this jargon language because that's how we first received it. I, I believe that right now is the time to clarify this so that we have a, a language that that's intuitive for usage. Because because originally the, the, the names were made for intuitive to make because it was so important to make the ingredients. But now that people are making them and they're available, it's it's more important to me to see prioritization on application and where it's intuitive application. So I don't need to teach you as much. Like if you get food, you know when to use food and when not to. I don't have to tell you, you know, this dose, this or that. You, it's, it becomes your knowledge, your thing that I give to you. Right on. So so let's go back to my first question. I'm going to ask it to you a slightly different way to try to um, tease out um, some different meaning. And this is how I ask it this time, is that so often people who have been uh, growing cannabis and food crops, they are used to thinking about, you know, not only NPK style nutrient mentality, but, but more so I'm going to put um, nutrients on this plant and I am going to make it grow and it is kind of in service to me 
and there's not a lot of thought given to um, byproduct like runoff and things like that. Um, whereas when someone first starts studying natural farming, they realize that, oh, there's, there's actually a whole bunch of recycling taking place. You know, I'm, I'm using other plants that are at their highest growth potential to feed my target plants that I want to use my preparations with. And now because I'm not using, um, you know, intense uh, chemicals or, or nutrients of any type, my runoff is now not only not bad, but it is it is clean and beneficial to the folks downstream. So when when you are first trying to get people over that hump of this is how you may have been taught to farm, but now we're going to be thinking about it in this new holistic way, um, what are some of the examples or, or tricks that you have found really bring people along with you on why natural farming is, is holistically and mentally different than traditional farming? Oh, okay. I, so I, I like, I like that question of, of, um, you know, how, how to bring people along with that. I, I think, um, I think, Initially, if you know, I, I listen to a bunch of your shows, and in, in, in especially in cannabis growing, you know, it's always I always see these questions about I have I have this deficiency. What do I add to my plant? And and it's this real relationship between grower and plant, and and, and tightly coupled. Whereas the different paradigm that you bring in with Korean natural farming is that I'm the grower, but I'm not directly interfacing with the plant between me and the plant are these microorganisms. And so the micro or so if I'm going to, you know, my plant shows some deficiency, I would then feed the microbes a certain thing that then they would exude it in a plant available form to be available for the plant. And I, I know your audience is pretty well familiar, familiar with Elaine Ingham and the soil food web and this whole idea of biology and living soils. So it's it's really in Korean natural farming we're taking that approach too that it's not just like 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 for me when I go out to my plant I'm not trying to um, juice my plant and get the most out of my plant what I'm trying to do is build the richest most dank fungal you know balanced soil that I can get the most thriving living soil I can get and then I know when I sow a seed into there that almost every deficiency is going to be taken care of because the microbes are are this interface between me and the plant. So so I'm not trying to target exactly like juice my plant, but I'm more trying to create balance in the ecosystem, which then the natural result is a thriving plant. And so I think when people understand that there's an interface between you and the plant, which is the microorganisms, then it leads to a bigger understanding of this, of of where you mention like runoff and in, in going into the ocean. You realize how the whole soil is alive and living and and can process toxins and and create fertility. Um, and and then that just brings you to a bigger how how you're more connected to to everything. I like that uh, explanation, and it reminds me a lot when I was very first getting into understanding organic farming. 
you know, some 10, 15 years ago, 15 years ago, um, I got turned on to the, 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 the farmer and speaker, Joel Saladin. And, and he, you know, he, he raises uh, meat products on his farm there, Polyface Farm. But he always said, you know, I'm, I'm not a chicken farmer. I'm not a cow farmer. I'm not a pig farmer. I'm a grass farmer. And he's always like, so long as I've got healthy soil and I'm growing healthy grass, then everything that lives on that grass is going to be healthier and more resistant to disease and all of that. Um, that's often how I think about um, working with the microbes in natural farming as well. It's like, listen, my job is not to grow the plant. My job is to grow really vibrant uh, soil jam-packed with microbes so that whatever the plant desires is there in some sort of buffet. And I like that idea that you that you propose that, you know, it's the the, the microbes are kind of like this this go-between between the plant and and myself. Because we don't we don't really do a very good job when we try to interact with the plant directly by feeding the plant. But if we feed everything in the in the rhizosphere, well then the plant is is by by natural course going to be healthy. And that's that's totally true. And that, and that's the biggest you know one one of the biggest focuses in Korean natural farming is building the soil foundation that the plant will thrive in. But but I also want to make the distinction that Korean natural farming can also be applied you know foliarly or into the root zone that you're. And because you've already used the microbes in fermentation, then this stuff is now plant available. So I can I can take these a lot most of the solutions, in fact all of them, and put them into liquid and then spray it onto the plant. And because it's already been fermented by this microbial interface, then it's directly absorbable into the plant. So I so I don't want people to just think, oh, well you just have to take the soil and make the soil good, and then your plant. You can actually also directly feed your plant with Korean natural farming, which is why I believe it it makes it a really powerful and adaptable farm system because we're focused on the soil and direct nutrition through, you know, through foliar spraying. So a lot of us who dabble in KNF, we know that um, the fermentation process um, makes the, the nutrition bioavailable to the plant, but there might be folks like me who don't actually know why. Uh, I just know that it does, and so I trust in what I'm being taught, and I move forward. What does the fermentation process do to the nutrients that make it readily accessible to the plant? Well, if you, I mean, you can you can get into this scientifically and and get some some big terms that you'd need you know a PhD to understand, but. But in its simplest, like analogous things that, that everyone can understand, it's the microbes are essentially digesting it. So, so for instance, if I'm making a fermented plant juice or a, a fish amino acid, I'm I'm putting, you know, material and sugar together. The osmotic pressure of the sugar is drawing out the juices. Then those juices are are pretty much you can think of it as like an external stomach because you know the microbes digest externally, whereas we digest internally. And they're kind of producing all kinds of enzymes and different things to to break down the whatever material into the more elemental compounds um, and in and making them plant available. It's 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 like it's just like how when you eat something and you digest it and you get energy, it's it's sort of magic. But then you could you could really go into the science and, and try to, you know, really like get a 
few PhDs describing how it happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I like this idea of a of an external uh, stomach. I think is what you said. It actually, I got this envisioning of a of a uh, of a parent bird pre masticating food before they give it to a baby chick that doesn't really uh, have a fully developed digestive system yet it's kind of like we're we're partially pre-digesting it by fermenting it and then giving it to our plant at its optimum usability um so anyway yeah and i i really like that that analogy that you're you're the you know the mama bird feeding your baby birds you're doing that pre-digestion to make sure that you're giving the best care to your plants so i like that Right on, good. So, so you know, wild crafting for use in KNF preparations is at the basis of why all this works. However, there are lots of cannabis growers who have never wild crafted like anything at all. When they get turned on to KNF, it's the first time that they find themselves, <clears throat> you know, going out into nature to sustainably take <clears throat> from their natural environment. Folks who feel a bit awkward and not at home necessarily identifying plants, it can be a little off-putting for folks to go off and go off into the woods to to gather whatever they want to gather. At its most basic level, some folks like straight up don't pack gloves for harvesting nettles, for example, simply mm. because they've never done it. When mm. you prepare folks to go out and wildcraft for their first time, what are some of the things that you set them up mentally with so that they can have a, a you know as much success as possible the first time they go out? Well, well, one time, I mean, specifically wildcrafting, you know, talking about fermented plant juices and these these different things. Like, so when I, when I'm when I'm doing a class with folks. Usually what we do is on my, you know, around my farm, there's, there's all kinds of things growing. So what, what I'll do with the class is I'll have us make several different materials all at the same time. So for instance, making one out of lemongrass, one from sweet potato, one from comfrey, um, one from, you know, a, a ripe fruits. And when we do all of these together, you get to see this difference that comes out. Like some plants are super juicy and they yield a bunch really fast. Others are much slower. And so when I'm working with folks to teach them, I like to have that diversity because I say, well, when you go home, you know, the same same weeds that are growing around your place, like on the, on, you know, like just the, 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 the weed, weed plants, like not weed, but like, you know, weeds, things we consider weeds are usually highly medicinal. And so when I, what I do during the class is I have them make it from multiple materials because I say, when you go home, you can see the difference here of what happened. You, you may not get the same results at home. Like if you used like a drier material or something and it didn't in, in your, and in class it juiced up really well. And then you go home and you try to do it and it doesn't get the same result. You may lose confidence and think, oh, it didn't turn out right. But in actuality, that plant may have been a little less juicy. So, so really what I like to do in class is, is with as you know, get as much experience and as much diversity so that we and students there can see and we can hold the jars up and we can go through and we can smell the differences in, in, from day one to day three to day five or however long the pour off takes. Um, and, and you get to see these changes. So, so through my teaching and my preparation for people, I just try to get them as many examples as possible and then I try to understand their bioregion a bit. 
like for instance, you're you're up in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, horsetail, like equisetum, whatever it is, it's everywhere. Grows everywhere and, and and me here in hawaii i'm just like sitting there just so jealous because okay. that's all the silica right and that's like and, and 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 you know there's certain things here bamboo other things i can get silica out of but but that equisetum is just pumped full of it and so really really you know when people it's how, how to get people into it it's like you know that same bottle you were going to buy at the grow store of silica yeah, that's in this weed right here, and you just need a few uh, pounds of sugar, and you can get that, you know. And, and that's the encouragement I give to people is try to, you know, we many many people. If you're not familiar, you look at the ground and you just think it's green bushes. You don't realize, oh, that's this medicinal herb. Oh, this is this medicinal herb, and your whole medicine closet is just right in your yard. You know, um, <clears throat> it's funny that you would uh, mention you know, being jealous about our horsetail because, you know, I follow your fabulous Instagram at Natural Farming Hawaii. And I'm always feeling jealous of the fruits that you have got available on your property. And, you know, it, I think that's kind of a fun thing that, you know, natural farmers can, are, are not only intimately aware of what they have locally, but also the things that they see other people using and they love to use as well. I, you know, traditionally when I go on vacation, I really like going to grocery stores in foreign countries. Um, that's one of my things. But <laughs> but I've realized now that that I, now when I start to travel, I've started looking for food that's going to be fun to snack for sure. But now I'm also looking for exotic inputs to bring home, and um, you know, I think that's a an interesting characteristic. Um, you know, of all of us, of natural farming folk, which which kind of leads me to my next question. You know, people often ask me, can they use grocery store purchased um, fruits and perhaps vegetables, but but usually people are asking about fruits um, in their KNF preparations, and they say, is the more important part the fact that it is. Um, ripe and ready and and not reached a necrotic state yet or is it is the importance that i have taken it directly off the tree and it hasn't gone through you know cleaning and transportation which would wipe the microbes off of the outside of the fruit um so getting to the point of the question how usable is store brought fruit for a uh, for a fruit fermentation. Um, yeah, so I I mean I I've not, I know um, a lot of people have differing op opinions on this, and 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 really the you know that the the ultimate proof in anything because we, we can we can you know correct each other and say this is right or that's wrong, but the ultimate proof is is in your produce at the end like how how chronic are your buds are they frosty are they just are they so chronic that your friends like you know they're like what have i been smoking previous to this you know <laughs> and, and that's that's the ultimate proof but but to, but to go into that a little bit I, I i look at the you know fermented fruit juice recipe and and i know you know here in hawaii it's it's no big deal like i go you know there's bananas every papayas i'm just i'm, I'm drowning in fruit basically so but but in 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 you know winter places where you don't have that access, um, um, you can take these fruits and ferment them and get the enzymes. Um, primarily, what you want to look at is is what what kind of biology is doing that reaction in your ferment, though. 
you, you know, um, and and if you know, because I've heard Chris Chris Trump last time when you interviewed him, he talked a little bit about it, and he was talking about if the plant is washed and it's and it has these, you know, the the only biology you have is from the hands of the grocery store clerk, which is true to a degree, but you can you can also um, you know reinoculate to a degree of of adding in lactic acid bacteria or or just even a little bit of fresh, um, some sort of fresh fruit in there. Like even if, even if you had like, you know, one wild apple that you picked and you threw that in with your other, um, you know, papayas that you bought, for instance, you know, um, there's, there's ways to get around it. So, so I'm not super dogmatic on that. And when I look at the fermented fruit juice specifically, I look at it as a food more than a microbial inoculum. So, so where the microbes are important is in that fermentation and are they, are they making the enzymes available? You know, are, are, how are they digesting this, this fruit? And, and that, that, that's, um, it's hard to say, but, but a lot of the lactobacillus is in the air. So by nature, you know, as long as you're not getting really funky molds on there, you you should be all right. But, but, you know, the, the ultimate proof is, is at the end of the day, you know, um, and, and I, I, if, if personally, if I was on the, the mainland or, or where, where it was winter, what I would try to do is during fall when, when all these wild fruits are coming out, like, like wild cherries or, you know, anything that's, that's, I just harvest all that, all the, all the Himalayan blackberry and stuff that makes amazing juice. So, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the folks who are following KNF practices are doing it in their own way in the city, you know, whether it be in their yard or in a tent or their basement or something. And, um, a lot of folks, you know, they just try to do their best wild crafting from where they live. And for, you know, folks in the city, you might be harvesting, you know, probably illegally from your local park, but, you know, people take rose hips from the park or, 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 you know, their neighbor might have an overgrown shrub that is showing green tips in the spring. And, and a lot of folks don't have a good idea of where to draw that line. And I like that you said, um, on the store-bought fruit that, that you're not necessarily as dogmatic as some, and 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 you're you're more interested in, is in, you know the proofs in the pudding, you know. So so what do you think about wild crafting in the city for people who you know getting outside of the city to wild craft is um, is a challenge? What kind of hints do you have for for wild crafting in Babylon? Uh, well, well, so I was in um, Los Angeles, California, right, right down on you know Santa Monica Avenue. My my auntie lives right over there, and and she she's a natural farmer, and she was like, you know, she was complaining to me. She's like, I I don't I don't have any of this stuff, and and I I I just took her dogs on a walk, and I walked downtown, and I saw all kinds of stuff just growing out of the cracks in the in the in the in the budget rent-a-car parking lot (laughs) there was enough dandelions growing through the cracks that i could make an amazing ferment from those dandelions and and you may you may think to yourself oh well it's kind of um it's contaminated because it's in this city and um you know car exhaust and all you know the city's not necessarily the most cleanly natural place to gather but something like that 
it's it's not going to, you know, like it's not going to stop me. I, I'm still going to ferment that. I'm still going to get an amazing product. And I from there, once I got my first dandelion FPJ, then I can start to grow things in my own yard. Maybe maybe spray that on some other things and boost up my own things to ferment. You know, but 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 literally when every every time I walked out in the city like L.A., it was just loaded with things to ferment. Do you think we need to be resistant to using that stuff because of, you know, say, for example, car exhaust, you know, landing on those plants and, you know, and being taken up by those plants and then and then we're spraying those on our plants? Or is that insignificant enough that it's really, you know, not worth being worried about? They got to be quiet. Um, yeah, well, so I would say, you know, in my, in my, like, I would, I would say it's pretty insignificant. I mean, I, I, but I've never done like chemical testing loads, but, but I've always found that the, you know, like, like people think that the, the food in the store is somehow clean or something, but you know, like, like if it came from a foreign country, there's all kinds of emissions and all kinds of stuff all over that. So, so when you're thinking of it and you think like, food from the store is clean, but this stuff from the budget parking lot is not. <laughs> it's like, in, in my in my opinion, you know, it's not, there's not that much difference between it, you know, and, and, and if you're worried about contamination, LAB is your friend. Yeah, yeah. LAB does kind of clean up everything. That's really true. Um, it's funny, um, you know, luckily I live on an island that is uh, uh, quite natural. And so there's a lot of things that I can wildcraft locally, but, but it's always, it always, cracks me up when, you know, somebody is pushing me on this or that organic use. And then, you know, we break for lunch and they go and they, they get, you know, chicken teriyaki, you know, on rice and, and, you know, no part of that is organic or clean. And I'm like, well, you know, we, we're all, we're all making our choices on which things we're going to hold to a high standard and which things we are not. Um, we just want to, uh, but, but when it comes to, you know, if you're going to be growing in the city in the first place, adding K and F inputs that are local as well, they're probably not going to be too far distant. Yeah. Well, I mean, but, but don't, but, but don't like, you know, the listeners don't take that to mean like go to some like nuclear radiation dump and gather <laughs> from there, you know, like garbage in is garbage out. Right. Yeah. You know, like within your reason. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. The same reason we don't want to use, you know, uh, straw that's been sprayed or wood chips that, you know, the city has sprayed or something. It's like, you know, get, get the best you have available. But, but also one of, one of my things I, I, I usually call it rule zero is don't let it stop you from growing. If, if the only thing you have available to you is, is some stuff, you know, like start fermenting it, get LAB in there and start growing, you know, like don't let it stop you from growing and say, well, I can't do this because everything I get is contaminated. I mean, just, just our, you know, the other, the other day I was posting about gathering seawater and people were like, isn't Fukushima leaking in there? Aren't you going to get poisoned? And I'm like, well, yeah, but I mean, aren't we all, you know, like, don't, don't let that, don't let that stop me. I'm not going to gather seawater just because Fukushima's leaking into the sea, you know, I'm, I'm pro but I'm here in Hawaii. I'm not going to gather it right at Fukushima to use it. Right. You know, so, that, so there's these degrees of like, you know, we live in a contaminated world is the truth. Uh, I think that's a great example. It's amazing how often I hear people about resist seawater fermentation because of that, or, or also, um, uh, FFA, right? And they're like, oh, I wouldn't use anything out of the ocean. I'm like, well, 
then, you know, it's, it's kind of the best we've got at this point with what we've done to the world and being, well, to use that word again, being dogmatic may not serve us in the bigger picture all the time. And, and, and don't, don't discount the, the microbes ability to neutralize contaminants. Like if, if I gather something and it's in, in, and it's has emissions on it, like if I gather dandelions from a parking lot and they have emissions on it through the fermentation process, it, it may be a little bit slower because it's contaminated, but those microbes will to a degree, and, I, and I'm not sure scientifically, but they will neutralize those toxins a bit. And so your actual end result after fermentation is actually less toxic than your starting product. Yeah, I got, I get that. That makes a lot of sense to me. I, um, you know, some of the places that I help patients garden, they're on the, they're on the city water on the Island, you know, the downtown water and it's got chloramine in it. Right. And, and Mm. regular chlorine, you can let it sit out overnight or mix it a little bit and the chlorine will off gas, but chloramine does not off gas. And so I recommend folks, I'm really just, you know, fill up a, a big bucket and then, and then put some, um, quality compost into it and let the, the natural, the humates in the compost will grab that chloramine and neutralize it. And I think that there's probably a lot of that activity going on when we're making these fermentations as well. There are natural protectants in it that are part of their job is going to be to, to render these, these what we'll call contaminants inert. Exactly. And, and what you mentioned where you have the humates and the humic and fulvic acids like absorb these things, it's the same for folks growing in salty soil. And, and these humics, and they, they'll, they'll grab things. And, and this, this is the same reason why in natural farming we build soil foundation because what the microbes are creating in your soil are these humates. And, and that's what clean, you know, if, so say, say you have great soil foundation and now you're watering this chloramine water on it that the humates in your rich, good soil foundation are actually processing those toxins before it gets to your plant. So, so that's, that's another reason, you know, that you brought, brought that up, that, that that's a bit of Korean natural farming is the soil and the humates, humates. Right on, right on. So let's go ahead and take our first short break and be right back. Uh, you're listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is natural farming educator Eric Drake Weinert. If you listen to Shaping Fire and you grow your own cannabis, chances are high that you are very particular about the inputs you use for growing. People like us painstakingly self-educate on cannabis nutrients and techniques so we can cultivate the best tasting and cleanest flowers possible. And when we go to purchase those nutrients, we want to be sure that our supplier shares our values and is providing exceptional quality. This is why I recommend buildasoil.com to my friends who care about quality. Build a Soil empowers organic growers to do their best work by sourcing and shipping only the finest cannabis growing supplies. From organic inputs, soils, soil testing and pots, to lights, growing tents, sprayers, and cover crops, Build a Soil founder Jeremy Silva doesn't just stock his store with what's available. He goes deep to personally vet each product for quality and determine that there isn't a better version of the product that he could be selling. Because of this arduous process, you know that your options on buildasoil.com have been carefully curated to create the results you are looking for. 
Not only that, but the build a soil way is a philosophy that will permeate your interaction with the company. From website design to pricing and shipping to after-purchase support, Jeremy and his team always strive to do their best and give you the best customer service in the business. Check out buildasoil.com today for top-tier quality cultivation supplies and a friends and family buying experience. And check out their educational videos and extraordinary social media while you're there too. Quality organic growing supplies at buildasoil.com. For 20 years, Humboldt Seed Company has been family-owned and providing reliable, high-yielding seeds originating in Northern California. While the current trend is to slap one super male into a line of hype strains, Humboldt Seed Company continues to breed with precision and care by doing large sifts and back crosses to emphasize the absolute best traits that a line has to offer. This kind of breeding takes time, talent, and space to work. No matter what kind of aroma you are particularly into, Humboldt Seed will likely have something you'll love. If you love fruit, you can choose from banana, mango, apricot, papaya, blueberry, blood orange, melon, and lemons across their various strains. They have all gas, glue, and classic sour diesel lines as well. Of course, there are the Heritage California strains like OG Kush, Jack Hair, and Headband, and their award-winning Blueberry Muffin is one that delights just about everybody's palate, especially when concentrated. Humboldt Seed Company is proud to bring to market the infamous Freak Show Cultivar 2, which has a great THC high, but looks so much like a fern that some folks can't even identify it as cannabis. It's a plant that really needs to be seen to be believed. If you're looking for well-balanced CBD seeds, Humboldt Seed Company can turn you on to CBD strains that actually have flavor, like the dill and pepper terpenes of Willie G's Lebanese Land Race. Whether you are looking for regular, feminized, or autoflowers, Humboldt Seed Company has the gear to make this your best growing cycle ever. Visit HumboldtSeedCompany.com today to check out their line of vigorous genetics, download their catalog, and find out where you can pick them up. You can also check out their Instagram at The Humboldt Seed Company to check out their gorgeous flowers and the extraordinary freak show plant. Humboldt Seed Company, let them know Shango sent you. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynamico endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the current leading brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. This new product called Dynamico is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. since the product first arrived here last year. You may have already even heard about Dynamico by its original name, Dynamike. Now, Dynamico is available at grow shops and online in the United States for the first time. I love using Dynamico to both speed up the growth of mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. 
you can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynomyco at dynomyco.com and find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O.com. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynomyco to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico endomycorrhizal inoculant. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is natural farming educator, Eric Drake Weinert. So, Drake, let's talk about uh, collecting indigenous microorganisms for a moment for indoor growers. You know, the information on, on why to use IMO and how to do it outdoors, that information's pretty well available. But but one of the questions I always get from basement or tent growers is, should they be collecting the microbes literally in their basement with in the rice box? Or should they still go out into nature and collect the outdoor um, microbes and bring them back to their tent in the hopes of kind of infusing the tent with more life. That that I mean that's a that's a good question on this and um and the whole key for the IMO process is diversity. So so one of the reasons you're going out to a forest to go grab it is that in in a in a forest there's a lot of diversity. It's usually a polyculture. There's a lot of um, detritus kind of decaying on the ground, which is a great rich food source, which encourages a lot of fungal diversity. And some old growth forests have microbes that are just ages and ages old. Like, like, like one, one, one interesting fact is that, or like not fact, but idea is that as a, um, as it, one week of my time, like, like, you know, for me, one week occurred in, if you scale that down to the microbes and their size, it's one week for them is about 10,000 years. Wow. And so so if you think of one week elapsed and it's like, oh, well, a few things changed. For the microbes, 10,000 years have changed, multi-generations, all these things. And so when you go grab the microbes <clears throat> from the forest, they've been going through this for thousands and thousands of years, like, like equi- you know, equivalent. And so going out to a forest and getting these microbes brings in these strong fungal microbes. So I believe if you're in a if you're in an indoor situation or you're indoors, I think that going out to a to an intact growing forest is very beneficial to bring this diversity that if you think of your indoor area, you know, usually you're cleaning it each time and so you're you're resetting your microbes back to like brand new, right? Each time you're cleaning things. And you're not getting this generational knowledge that's out in the forest. But I also bring that to that you should probably do multiple collections. Some One of those being a really nice um, fungally rich forest area around you. One being um, right, right in your very localized area, like within 100 feet of where you're growing, that's the richest area you can find. And then if you're indoors, one right indoors, or, or if you're outdoors, it'd be right in the field where you're growing. So, so by taking these, these three collections, which, which don't limit yourself to just three, you could, you could do more than this, but with these three collections, you're getting the, 
the granddaddy educators from the forest. You're then getting the best guys from your nearby vicinity. And then you're getting the third collection, which is your um, right in your growing area. So whatever is adapted there, that's that's the best. And then by taking those those collections from those three areas, you can then combine them later into like uh, when you're activating IMO, like an IMO three process where you're making a Bokashi out of it. You can combine those in there. And the best of all those worlds will harmonize and reproduce with each other and come out with even more diversity that's tuned even more to your region. So it, and you can also take those and make them into a compost teas if you're going to go liquid route. So 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 by having multiple IMO collections of of those areas, you're going to get the best of all worlds happening. I, I love that idea. And, and and I also love that it did not occur to me <laughs> to do multiples and then and then mix them up. I think that I would really enjoy doing those three collections and then putting those three collections together at the same time on a on a um microscope slide and watching them to see who outcompetes whom. Um, certainly it would happen differently in the soil, but gosh, it would be really interesting to take these, you know, these, these, you know, old growth forest Yoda microbes and introduce them to some like, you know, city tough microbes. And then with whatever the hell is in the basement, you know, just to see, see how they interact. Anyway, that'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're going to get the best of all worlds. And it's, you're going to get a, like those when those microbes breed with each other, you're going to get things that you couldn't otherwise have. Mm-hmm. So when when collecting IMO properly outside, you know, sometimes I'll see these like gorgeous white uniform, you know, fuzzy collections and I'm like, "Oh, they really did it right. That's 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 a beautiful thing." And then and then sometimes I see some color splotches and and then sometimes I see different color splotches and those are bad, but the first color splotches, they're like, oh, that's just microbe variety. So so what is the benchmark or is there a benchmark or a, um, um, a, a thumb approach, thumbnail approach to knowing, like, like when it's, when it's solid white and it looks fluffy and beautiful, we generally know that we did it right. But how do we know if our colored splotches on it are probiotic splotches or are actually contaminant splotches? Well, that's that's a good question. On the on the in terms of like what 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 makes a good collection, um, the the interesting thing of this is that when you're when you know when you get that great collection you're saying and you see all the the white like spider web, it looks like almost cotton balls, kind of yeah. like it's that it's that thick and like. Um, what you're seeing there, those microbes that you're actually visually seeing are not actually the microbes you want per se. Like, like they're just, they're, they're mostly, I, I don't know the exact genus, but there's about three different varieties like Bacillus subtilis and uh, so, something else. There's these three microbes that are the predominant ones. But those, even though you see them, those aren't really what you want, but it indicates that you have a good collection because when those are thriving and they're growing, it means their partners, the ones that are smaller, the diverse soil microbes that you've collected into your starch source are the ones that you want. So, so it's like if you see the white, the, the white fuzz growing, it means that the other microbes that are in 
tandem with it or in, in this symbiosis in this same collection are the ones you want. So, so it's it, the thing about IMO collection is you're collecting these very subtle things that microbes that we don't know that much about them. We know a lot about those three or four genuses, but we don't know about these these soil microbes. They're, they're it's largely a mystery to all known science. Wow. And so, so 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 what? So when you see that white stuff, you know, like in its in its, it, you can't even like DNA sequence it really to say, well, we found this and that because the the. The three, the the big three, will be there, but the subtlety and the diversity in those smaller ones, in those those the lesser ones, are are unknown to us. So the white fuzz is kind of an indicator species. It's like, hey, if you've got the white fuzz, what you're actually trying to collect is probably here. And if you're not getting any white fuzz, since they are uh, partners with our actual target microbes, if you're not collecting white fuzz you're probably not getting the target stuff as well. I, I like that. And I actually, I didn't understand that. So, so how, so what would you deem a, a, a negative splotch? Like if you, if, if you were talking to a new student and they said, oh, I've got these splotches, how would you help them think through whether or not the, the, contaminants or the splotches are are good and it's it's yet another indicator that there's an active microbe life or you're like oh no that's gone bad you got to throw that away well well so so really the, the other splotches and other things tend to be like the, the other color things like if you get in greens and yellows and these and even reds red red you don't want red red is the one color like if it's red you don't want it like throw it away like, like don't, you know, even compost, put it in your neighbor's compost. Okay. Like, <laughs> like, um, um, but, uh, but those other, the other splotches, they're largely to do with moisture content. And th this is the, this, this is where it becomes super tricky and you got to kind of know your area, know the climate and just do, do a few collections to really get a good one. But it's, it's, it's whether your substrate is too wet or too dry. One of, one of the main major problems I find is that people will cook their rice and they'll put it in the box and it's still hot and then they'll cover it. And what happens is the the, the rice still um, steam comes off. It goes to the lid, whatever kind of lid you put on there, paper towel, whatever. It forms droplets and it drips down. And everywhere a water drip hits your rice, that's where you'll get a green splotch or like a yellow splotch. And what that is is too much water in that area and it became anaerobic. And, um, and so, so, but what I, what I tell people with that is, is that really what it comes down to is it's an 80, 20 rule, meaning that, that if you go and you get a hundred percent like white, awesome collection, I, I've done that maybe like four five, six times in my life. And I've probably collected, you know, a hundred, 200 of these things. So it's not like even, even I'm not getting the white every time. Really what I'm getting is what I call the 80-20 rule, where if I look at it, 80% of the, the rice looks nice and white and kind of, um, my, you know, that the cotton candy coming, and then there's 20% of it is is different color. That's a good collection because I'm actually, those anaerobes are to a degree part of this, you know, the, the whole picture, and, and it's, it's about keeping them in balance. Um, and, and, and when I go to propagate them further, it's not like, 
if I got an 80, like an 80% good collection, then when I grow it out, I'm going to grow that 20%, you know, that, that contamination is going to take over my pile. It's not the case. Usually the good ones, the beneficial ones under ideal conditions will dominate and in later propagation stages of IMO, they'll eliminate those, those green guys or the, the ones that I don't need, you know, as, as conditions permit. Yeah, that so, makes so yeah, you, that makes sense. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so so even without the the world's best collection, it's not it's it's not the end of the world. It's 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 really really the 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 collections I would say are no good are ones that when you like pick it up and it's soggy. Like like really it, it, it like when I have really good collections, I can take the rice out of the box and hold it from one corner and like shake it. And it stays together because it's completely myceliated out and the fungal things are just holding it together so tightly that it's it's like a like um, what, what do they call it? Natto? Like yeah. It's a yeah. Japanese. You know, when you cut that open, it's like a paste. It's like a brick, right? Yeah, totally. It's that type of activity that you want. You want that brick kind of stuff. If you ever get mush, mushy, soggy that's not the those are the collections that you don't want so so let's shift a little bit from IMO back over to um, liquid preparations because I want to talk a little bit about um, about storing because I can't believe I'm the only one who's made a, a canF fermented preparation and then have it go bad what I feel is prematurely. Um, and I, and you know, sometimes we want a permeable lid and sometimes we want a sealed lid and sometimes we want it in the fridge. Um, but sometimes we really just want it in a cool, dark place. Walk us through how to think about storage of these essentially living preparations. Um, what, okay. Yeah. Storage, storage is a great consideration. I know, I know you talked about it last time with Chris a bit, but when, when you're done making a, a, a ferment, like a fermented plant juice, um, I what I in in so similar with the IMO it's there's a concept called supersaturation and 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 what what it what I mean in this context is that what happens is every um water molecule is bound with a sugar molecule um in in this in this form and actually sugar holds a whole bunch of water around it it's it's really thirsty in the way it that chemically holds water um, and so what, what happens in, into, in preservation and natural farming, if you're having stuff go bad, it's usually that you didn't add enough sugar to, to balance out all the water. So, so like the, the classic adage that water is life, if there is available water in my solution that's not bound with a sugar, life will find that and it will eat the water and as it eats that water it'll degrade my product further wow. which will eventually cause cause spoilage but if i'm able to add enough sugar in there just similar to making a um a jelly or a jam preserve where they add so much sugar that then it preserves it this is the, the same concept and and what i the analogy i like to draw for folks is it's like han solo and carbonite <laughs> So, so literally like he, Han Solo is, is frozen in carbonite and he's just frozen there. Right. And, but, but when, then when Luke comes and defrosts him, you know, that the force reawakens and, you know, he comes back. Right. Right. And, and it's this similar concept that by adding sugar into your solution and sugar is carbon, 
you're essentially putting carbonite and freezing all the microbes in these things that later when you dilute them with water, that 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 carbon, the sugar becomes a food source. The carbon's dissolved enough that you're freed from this prison. And now they can, the nutrients haven't been degraded in this process. So, so it's really about super saturating with enough sugar. And, and you got to just add sugar until you see it settle out. And I, I, have, I have some good videos on that um, about how, you know, to, to visually see. Because once you see it and you know super saturation, it's like, okay, I know how to preserve anything now. Yeah, once, once you've seen it done, you're like, oh, I understand. This is like a whole plug-in for my brain. Um. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, so, so, you know, a lot of folks like to show off their <clears throat> confidence in their ferments by drinking them. And, and heck, some people just do it straight up with nutrients generally, but, but many folks don't seem ready to really use their preparations internally. Um, well, especially in these days of the coronavirus pandemic, will OHN help strengthen the human immune system's uh, is it is it beneficial to drink, for example, like labs? And how, what standard would you use for newbies trying to figure out if their stuff is successful enough to go ahead and drink internally? Well, well, well. First, I just preface by saying I'm not a doctor. It's not medical advice or anything. But, but just based on my my practice and my my things that I've experimented, and and things I've heard from other people that I've tried. Um, number one is smell it. It don't 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 just put it in your mouth. Smell it. If if it smells okay, like like it shouldn't smell like rotting eggs, vomit, death, or poop. If it smells those four smells, don't put it in your mouth. Um, and just say it's I don't, I don't know it's you know just don't 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 use that one internally, but if it doesn't have those smells, then you then tasting you know I I I drink fermented plant juice the 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 food can of food all the time, I, I I make it from all kinds of different things and that's and what I do is I add it to my water to flavor it, so I'll just you know and, and it's essentially it's like an old old soda recipe. That's what soda used to be was these extracts and sugar. And, and that's, you know, people used to make all these different syrups from these things. And um, so, so I'll, I'll use it to drink. It's great and energizing. Um, and then when I get into LAB, um, usually I, I find that it's, it's – so I got, a, I got a story that I made a, a liter, like a quart jar I think that a liter, whatever, a liter jar of this stuff. And I gave it to my friend to, for a month's supply to try. And he drank the entire jar in one day. Oh, wow. So he drank a month's supply plus all that sugar. And I was like, how do you feel? And he's like, I don't, you know, um, but, but he drank this and he was fine. So, so I don't believe that you can overdose on LAB. The, the problem is if you take too much LAB, is the LAB will eat the food of your indigenous microorganisms, and they're really powerful. So they'll just wrestle away the food from your indigenous microbes. So if you're looking to build a lot of indigenous gut biota or indigenous microbes everywhere, you gotta use LAB in balance. But for for human consumption, my own consumption, I've I've seen you. I've, my friend didn't overdose, and I've and I just add it a little bit, you know, and it's and. In a healthy person, LAB should be about 30% of your microbes. So if you're always adding this LAB in, you're going to boost your immune system just based on that, that LAB helps all the other indigenous microbes in a way. And I, then, oh, and then, go oh, yeah, go ahead. No, I didn't, I thought you were done. Go ahead. Please finish. 
Oh, and then and then to go in, to go into the last the last bit about the OHN is that the the cool thing about that is that it's all these different herbs and they've just been fermented and then tinctured. And so the nice thing is that unlike other medicines like like um you you can't um you can take it regularly and it basically just boosts your immune system up. So imagine your immune system just going up a level and then it does but it's not like a peak that it's going to fall from. It just raises it up that it'll stay there and, and with regular use it's just all those things help you digest better and um, um you know they're 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 proven anti-pathogens you know garlic yeah it'll su- supercharge pathogens yeah exactly yeah so when you were explaining that i actually got this um corny idea in my head that you know if if we spray beneficial microbes on the outside of the plant so that beneficial microbes take up residence on the tops and the bottom of our leaves which makes it a less hospitable environment for say for example powdery mildew to come and land on a leaf they can't really do it as much because it's already populated heavily by beneficial microbes um it makes it occur to me that maybe I should be doing lab foliar on myself in these days of coronavirus so that, um, you know, that it's less possible that I, I touch anything or anything gets on me that, that eventually finds its way into, you know, my eyes or my mouth. Now, now seriously, you know, again, we are not doctors, but, you know, if we're talking about natural systems and if my body is already covered in microorganisms, I would think that the more supercharged my skin is with lactobacillus acid and, and other potential beneficial microbes, that I become less of an environment for, for pests, if you will. Oh, this is absolutely true. Um, so, so I actually use lactic acid bacteria in my laundry so, so not only, so, you know, each time I do laundry, I just pour in about eh, an ounce or so. I don't know. I just free pour it in there just to, just to inoculate it. So it, it helps to clean your, your clothes. And then, and then when I'm putting that on, um, I'm getting this microbial armor in my clothes. And, you know, if I ever sweat or anything, uh, those microbes will eat it up. So I don't, I don't stink at all. And, and I think of it as, um, you know, yeah, it's, 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 so my clothes are washed in it. And then yesterday, since you know, since coronavirus is hot right now, I don't really want to like play too much into that. But, but yesterday when I went out to the hardware store, I, I, I and I actually went to Costco as well, which is like a, you know, there's one place you're going to get infection. It's yeah, probably it's a, Costco. There's a Petri to, dish. Yeah. Right. So, so when I got home, I immediately took, um, you, you know, a bowl, filled it with water, poured in a, a you know, a little bit of lacto, got it and it started up and just, just rubbed it all over my body. Every like like my whole face, my arms, everywhere that was exposed, I just rubbed it on. Just so any any pathogen I picked up on that ex- expedition, I come home and the the LAB is I, what I translated LAB into is KNF police. <laughs> so any pathogen that's like a thug or a gangster that's gonna cause trouble to me, it's like I'm just putting the police all over myself. And so they're just going to go and, and think think of like non-corrupt police because they're well-fed. Okay. You know, I mean, sometimes we think police, we think, oh, God. Totally. Like police allies. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but imagine beneficial police. Okay. Like like just imagine this ideal world out there. Right. And, and I put so I put all these microbes, which act as police officers all over me. So any any thug was 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 processed. So I so I felt like that that was my 
kind of biosecurity to come like how, how am I going to come back into my home and not bring this pathogen with me if I was exposed? Well, I just treat it with a, a, a beneficial microbe that will eat the food of that one and or eliminate that one from the system. Wow. I love that idea. And it totally makes me want to take some of my labs and put them in a spray bottle and, you know, sp spray them on myself to finish a shower or something or, you know, because, um, you know, I, I, I live in Washington, right? And and we are the epicenter of coronavirus. And, and, you know, my whole island is locked down. The churches are closed. The schools are closed. It's pretty much, even though I don't want to like play into the fear aspect, it's a constant daily reminder, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm essentially on voluntary isolation at home just because I don't want to be a vector or get sick myself. And, uh, and it'd be interesting to, to add to that with giving myself foliar and adding this layer of, of, you know, body protectants to my, to my outside. And, you know, even though it's new to me, um, I bet you, you know, back to the land folks have been doing this for a long ass time. Yeah, I mean, lactobacillus is actually proven in meat processing facilities to be a better cleanser to get rid of pathogens than bleach in, in in long term. So, so, so you mentioned that in, in you know, um, so we, my, my family, we, we had a meeting last night. We discussed biosecurity, and and part of that is, you know, every every day or at least once a week, I'm going around the property and spraying lactobacillus just for my plants but that's creating a a a safe zone around here where where even if, if neighbors were contaminated that stuff you know if that microbe floats through there and lands it's it's going to be processed by this lab dude that's totally cool i'm really glad that they came up even though i wasn't looking for it too so um let's go ahead and and have our second break i'm really excited about this last set um I posted out uh, to a bunch of listeners, letting them know that I was going to talk to you and, and asked for their questions. And so I've got a handful of those that we're going to go through after this break. Um, you are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is natural farming educator Eric Drake Weinert. This message is for folks who grow cannabis. I'm talking to home growers, patients, and commercial growers too. I'm probably talking to you. When you plan out your next growing cycle, be sure to check out Humboldt CSI Seeds at HumboldtCSI.com. Caleb Inspecta and his family have lived in Humboldt County for over 100 years. For the last 40 years, three generations of his family have cultivated extraordinary Sensamia cannabis in Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity Counties. Because of his lineage and the hard-earned experience that comes from growing up smoking and sifting large populations of cannabis plants in Northern California, the seeds you'll cop from CSI will be winning genetics based on longtime heavy hitters and updated and resifted to bring out new and exotic traits and better yields. Go ahead and ask around. Caleb, also known as Inspecta and Pirates of the Emerald Triangle, is a breeder's breeder. He reaches way back and works with significant strains, recreating them in new and interesting ways that you'll love as a toker and a grower, as well as offering you some surprises that will delight serious seed traders and cultivators. Humboldt CSI goes a further step and selfs all these chemovars so you know all the seeds will be female. These are not experimental feminized seeds. Humboldt CSI releases some of the best female seeds available anywhere, and it will show in your garden. 
Folks grew quite a bit of CSI Humboldt Gen X last year here on Vashon Island, and everyone was pleased. The patients had beautiful female plants and didn't have to cull half of their garden as males. The folks growing for the fun of getting high grew colorful flowers with exceptional bag appeal and great highs. And breeders had seven out of seven females in a pack, which gave them a lot of phenotypic choices. Take a moment right now and visit HumboldtCSI.com. You'll find an up-to-date menu of both feminized and regular lines, along with photos and descriptions. That's HumboldtCSI.com. Growing cannabis in greenhouses is taking over the cannabis industry. An efficient and effective blend of sunshine-grown terpene profiles and the controlled environment of indoor, greenhouses can be the best of both worlds. For many greenhouse operators, though, building their greenhouse before gaining insight into how cannabis greenhouses differ from ornamental crops can be the start of a world of hurt. Eric Brandstad and his team at Greenhouse Advisory Group have the experience and technical know-how to help you avoid these pitfalls. Eric Brandstad has been helping cannabis growers find locations, design, build, and equip their greenhouses for over a decade, first starting in Northern California, but expanding over the last five years to helping clients throughout the world. He has an impeccable reputation for both depth of knowledge and kindness in communication. You can hear Eric explain some of the challenges facing cannabis greenhouses and how to overcome them in episode number 41 of the Shaping Fire podcast. No matter where I go in the country, good people with smart backgrounds still are making the mistake of building without knowing cannabis, and it causes them to burn through capital and time fast. Everyone has their own failure point. For some, it is improper ventilation planning. For others, it is surface temperatures of the building or the plant's leaves or both. Some folks that build their greenhouse from scratch make really basic errors like placement of the greenhouse on the property or not understanding the natural environment where the greenhouse sits. Some have even built a decent greenhouse but are inefficient in their deployment of light deprivation techniques and never really hit their target yields. It's great when you learn from your mistakes, but it's even better when you learn from the mistakes of others. When you bring on Greenhouse Advisory Group, you will learn from the mistakes of their many clients, and you'll take advantage of the best practices developed by Eric Brandstad over his years of working with clients just like you. From location development to choosing a builder and tricking out your new greenhouse or retrofitting or rescuing your failing greenhouse, Eric will help you through it. Visit GreenhouseAdvisoryGroup.com to learn more and connect with Eric and his team. That's Greenhouse Advisory Group. Did you know that Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast? When I attend conventions or speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery, talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile. Nicholas Mahmood on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing. Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world. Ben Cassidy of True Terpenes on using terpenes for health in your everyday life. Reggie Godino of Steep Hill on the cannabis genome. And Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system, and even my own presentation on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business even though the risks are so high. As of today, there are over 100 videos that you can check out for absolutely free. Go to youtube.com forward slash Shango or click on the link in this week's newsletter. 
Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is natural farming educator, Eric Drake Weinert. So I'm looking forward to this last set, uh, Eric. We're going to get you all over the place um, because I asked uh, listeners of the show uh, to comment on some of the specific things in KNF that they have a question about that they have never found online or heard mentioned in another interview. So we're going to kind of bounce around from topic to topic, but these are really, these are really specific questions. So uh, you might find these entertaining. All right. So let's start um, with this one. So most of the KNF literature seems to be written for forested areas with the spread of cannabis cultivation to every part of the country. People are making KNF preparations to use on their crops everywhere. How should wild crafting and KNF preparations adapt for dry and high desert environments where nearly none of the typical KNF plants are indigenous? Um, especially when trying to collect, um, um, IMO in the dryness of the desert. So essentially the question is, how should we adapt any of these ideas we've talked today in hot, dry environments? That's, well, that's, that's a great question. Cause I, I've been working with folks up in, um, Bend, Oregon and, uh, it's, it's pretty deserty up there. And so they have these, these similar challenges. Also been working with a few folks in Israel, um, so if you actually on my microbial secret, uh, society podcast, um, I did two episodes with Sam Bevins and we talked about KNF in the desert specifically of how to do it, you know, how to do these collections. But ideally, you know, if, if you're in the desert and you're trying to collect IMO, there are tons of IMOs in the desert. If you look at the, the desert um, sand, it, it's, it actually creates this crust that you'll see living on the top. And those are, those are microbes that form this micro crust to, to be there. The difference, like I was saying earlier about microbial collection is that it's about moisture content, whether you're successful or not. And so because you're in a desert, you may need to, um, have your rice be a little bit more moist and, or what, what I learned directly from master Cho for collecting the desert is to go to that area before you're going to collect. And for a week before, every day, use what we call the maintenance solution. So that's fermented plant juice with um, OHN, uh, brown rice vinegar, and a structure in it. Or, or um, W's. Yeah, anyway, I don't want to get into the acronyms. But <laughs> but it's the, it's the maintenance solution that you would use. And what that is, is it's a bunch of biostimulants that with that moisture, for, for a week before you're watering that area, it's increasing the a lot of the biological activity. But then when you go to set your collection box in that area, um, then you don't water it because you want to biostimulate this area, but then you want the toughest guys that have been encouraged to be strengthened to then go into your collection box. So, so there's ways of like kind of watering and pre-stimulating the area, but you don't want to like get the weak guys by, by watering it at the same time you're collecting. Um, so, so there's lots of, lots of tips like that, but we, we went really, really into the desert because more and more of the earth's becoming a desert every day. So, um, very, very vital. Right on. So anybody who's like, especially into that, make sure that you double back to, uh, to Drake's, um, microbial secret society podcast and listen to that in full. 
So, um, so let's take another one. So the question is, when we are working our way from IMO1, the collection, to IMO4, um, bringing it up to scale, how best do we grade the result of each stage so that we know we have a good product before moving on to the next level? Well, so yeah, that, that's that's a great question, and and going going from your your initial collection of IMO one, which which I call a seed IMO collection, so that that we kind of covered in the show of of looking, you know, you're looking for that that white cotton candy kind of stuff, and at least eighty percent good, of of where it's eighty percent kind of whitish, twenty percent colors mixed in, and then when you pick it up, you want it to be very firm, not mushy, so that's that's number one. Number two, as you're moving that, what I call that is just preserve seed IMO, where you're putting it into sugar. And there's really no gradient there. The only thing, you know, you, know, you can't really evaluate it because it's sleeping, it's hibernating. The only thing you want to watch for is if it's not sleeping. So if I store my IMO and, all this, and, and after a day or two, after I've added the equal parts of sugar to, the, to, to storing it, um, if it starts bubbling, that means it's still active and it's not sleeping. So if I store that for a prolonged amount of time and it's still active, it will degrade and I, and I won't have it happening. So as long as your IMO2, your, your, your preserved seed IMO is not bubbling, you can just take that as like it's, it's good because you saw it at the one stage. There's, there's really not a way to evaluate it other than waking it up and putting it under a microscope. So then when you're taking it up to the third stage, stage and what we call this is propagating IMOs or propagated IMO you are um, really at this stage this is when your nose knows so there are some visual indicators but really it's about the smell and typically lately I've been using dog food and, and wood shavings um, to, to be a bulk substrate and when I first started, it smells kind of oily, like, you know, I'm just using pedigree dog food. So, you know, it has that pedigree oily smell to it and, and the wood shavings, you know, whatever wood shaving smell they had. But within the first 24 to 48 hours, that smell goes away. It's neutralized. And what I end up with is a smell of a bakery, like fresh, fresh baked bread. And, and as I'm turning the pile and keeping it below 120 degrees and propagating it through this process, every time I go up to turn the pile, I'm smelling it and I'm also feeling the temperature. And so if the smell ever smells like wet asphalt, that's the, that's, um, actinomyces. And those are, those are an indication that your pile is getting too hot and you're starting to grow the wrong microorganisms. Mm -hmm. So what you want to do is turn the pile so that you don't have that smell and the temperature is, is below 120 degrees. And, um, and then out over the complexity, it usually here, here in Hawaii, it's about a week process. It'll go from that smell of the oily stuff to the fresh baked bread, then to a smell of kind of like a really dank forest. Like when you, when you go into, you know, like if you went into the redwood forest and you pick up a thing of soil and you smell that and that, that, that foresty smell that we have, and that's an indication that the microbes you've propagated out are actually those soil forest microbes that we wanted, not these high temperature, I, I, I call them like rave kids <laughs> that are, you know, kind of strung out and stuff. You produce the, the, the dirt, the soil kids, the 4-H kids is what I call those guys. Right on. Well, that's a, that's um, a 
go ahead. And, and then, and then, and then, well, and then, and then the same, the same thing, that same smell, that same kind of patterning is the same for your four stage where you're mixing in equal parts of soil to it. You should, you should go through that same, it should be kind of, um, you know, that, that forest floor smell and never that actinomycin smell. And, and again, that the temperature staying below 120 degrees. So, so those are basically the, the, you know, smells, uh, temperature seeing indicators and then other than that, you know, like if you really want to evaluate it, you got to do like, you know, DNA testing and or the, the microscope, microscopic tests. But sometimes testing with a microscope, you're not going to see all these beautiful fungal hyphae and all these things because they're in spore form. You know, you know, like when they're in sugar, they, they go into these spores. So so you're not necessarily going to, you know, put it under a microscope and just see all this great hyphae. It, it may look like, oh, there's not that much happening here, but it's because they're all spored out and they're they're in their preserved form. Um, it's not lost on me that that everything that we're talking about that we're making part of the test for it being good and a success is that it's got smells that we like. You know, it seems like. Um, you know, nature is no fool in that, you know, the things that we are going to want to engage with smells like, you know, bread and forest floor and sweet and things like that. And things that, that smell like, you know, feces and rotting are generally not what we want. Um, it just brings me back to the same way that we generally like to buy cannabis, which is the nose nose, let your, let your body lead the way. Yep. 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 And, and, and when you bring those similarities, it's, it's the same as, so think of, think of us and our temperature. If, if we're in temperatures above 120 degrees, we perish relatively quickly. You know, and I'm talking Fahrenheit, you know, yeah. but, but, um, yeah, so, so same, like, like if you put your hand into your micro pile and you can't leave it in there for like a minute comfortably, you know, I mean, it's going to be warm, right? But it's like a hot tub. But if you if you have to pull your hand out because it's ah it's burning hot, if it's burning you, the microbes similar, they're they're being burned as well. So so this analogy you bring of like us to them, it's it's very it's very similar. Yeah. Right on. So the the next contributed question is um, why is brown rice vinegar so special compared to using other vinegars? Brown rice vinegar. So so largely in my practice right now. I am not using brown rice vinegar. What I am using is a fruit vinegar. Hmm. So I, I, I get a lot of bananas and I'll ferment those into a vinegar. And as long as the pH is below 2.4, I, you know, I got a vinegar and there's a simple process to follow. But that, that, the, the reason for brown rice vinegar is that the brown rice and also the fruits upon metabolization when your body, when a, when a plant or a body absorbs it, it tends to flip it from being an acidic condition into being an alkalizing condition. And I don't think that property is true for like Heinz white vinegar. I think just because it's largely like acetic acid and I'm not sure, I, I, I'm not sure on the scientific subtleties of what's happening, but, but I've been told that the the fruit vinegars or the grain vinegars are the ones you want to use but in my in my personal understanding of it i really just recommend people make a living vinegar 
So, so in, in, up in the Pacific Northwest, you know, making vinegar out of pears or apples or, or plums or, you know, whatever fruits, strawberries, you know, blueberries, all these, all these fruits would give you a really good vinegar. But having your own living vinegar brings in so many more enzymes and amino acids and all kinds of stuff that, that we don't even know about. Vinegar is one of the most um, powerful tools like when you put vinegar on a leaf surface, it actually creates more wax on the plant's surface, which makes it more resistant to things like powdery mildew or, um, you know, bacterial leaf conditions. And so vinegar, vinegar, having a, a living vinegar is, I would say, really vital. And then making it from fruits or grains is the way to have this, um, this uh, alkalizing effect. Right on. <clears throat> That's more about vinegars than I've ever known. <laughs> and, that, and now it actually sounds, you're, and you're right, we do have a lot of late season fruit on our trees that just goes bad. And it would be really great to use those pears and apples to make, you know, custom local vinegars that'll be, you know, packed with uh, beneficial local microbes. So, so this next question I almost didn't include. Um, and, and the question is, can we collect IMO in plastic if we only have access to treated wood? And in my head, it's like, you know, look a little harder for untreated wood. But the idea behind the question is, is pretty engaging. So, so what, what if any, impact would would collecting in plastic have for our IMO I well I often I often see people try to use a plastic tub to to collect IMO but but one one thing one thing's for sure is that the plastic is non-breathable even even on like on the micro level you know it's like it doesn't let air through the same way as wood does and also the micro space is tighter right in wood even though it looks solid to us, if you really zoom in, there's a lot of holes in it. And so microbes are able to pass through these natural materials. So I would, I would say to, um, you know, what often actually what, what I find to be a really good thing to use is go to your local thrift store and look for like a, 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 a wicker basket. Like a, uh, um, like an Easter basket or something, you know, you know, like how woven out of grass basket type of thing. Yeah. And those are great choices. The, the, the idea of a cedar box, I, I, there are certain reasons for it, that, that it, it selects for certain microbes. But largely what we've been using here in Hawaii, we even take a, like a, a piece of bamboo and cut it in half and just put the rice in there. Or I often use laohala baskets or these other you know, woven natural materials. Um, and, and, and of course the, like, like what I recommend is, you know, if, if you're up there and you like, like if you're in the Pacific Northwest and you got blackberries, the weave a basket out of the blackberry vine and then collect in that and you're getting even more of this indigenous stuff in there. So, so, so the, the, what, what I'm trying to get at with, with this and with the plastic question is, is just avoid the plastic. The plastic is not your friend. It's not breathable. It's not, you know, like imagine you're pressed up against the plastic. The, it, and furthermore, you're trying to get the microbes to move through your container, like up into your rice. Because I actually bury the thing significantly down in the, like in the ground, especially if I'm in colder regions. But, but plastic will not allow those microbes to move from the soil through the container into the rice. So largely, if you're collecting in a plastic container, majority of the microbes you're seeing are actually from the air, 
which are not the soil microbes you're looking for. Wow, that's really interesting. I like I like the elegance of your answer too. That um, it's not really about wood or plastic. It's definitely not plastic, but there's all these other solutions other than wood. I like that. Yeah, so, there, there's tons. I mean, like like go like I I used to use cardboard boxes. I don't I don't I don't really recommend that at all because like there's there's better things like these natural woven materials, but but. Like, like I said, don't let anything stop you. <laughs> uh, so our next question is, um, a, a listener asked what your thoughts are on non-dairy alternatives for making LAB such as oat milk or bean milk. Um, so LAB, LAB is the most prevalent microbe on, on earth in, in, in the Milky Way, I would say. It's the most powerful microbe in the Milky Way. So it's kind of omnipresent everywhere. And the recipe that we follow in, in Korean natural farming is a process of putting out starch water to collect diverse LAB. Then it goes through a process where we pour that into milk. And what that does is in my first starch water, I collected all kinds of everything. But LAB grew the fastest, so it's the highest population. When I pour that into the milk, the milk eliminates all the other bacteria because they can no longer digest the lactose sugar. And only that really the LAB thrives at that. So what the second step by adding the culture, like the starch water into the rice is a purification step. So when then when I pour that serum off and after it separates into the curds and the whey, the whey is largely purely lactobacillus and there's not many other bacteria in there. So that so that's the process we go through in natural farming with the milk. It acts as a purification step. So the question is, do you need that purification step? Can you just leave the rice wash out and just catch the LAB in there and use that as LAB? The answer is yes, you can. Like in in, in Korea for animal farming, they're just taking rice bran and mixing it into water and letting the LAB naturally come from the air and, and ferment, and it'll start bubbling after a day or two. And they call that LAB. But even though it's other contaminants, the difference is with that, you have a shorter shelf life. That if you don't do the purification through the milk, then you can't really preserve it because you the, the microbes don't settle down the same way and there's too much water and all these other, other considerations. So with that alone, by just mixing rice bran into water and stirring it up and letting it sit out, you get an LAB. So you could just every day on demand say, oh, I'm going to make LAB next week, two days before, mix it up, make it and use it. And you don't have to go through this rice process. So, so, so excuse me, the milk process. I follow you. So um, put differently, um, oat milk and bean milk are not recommended because they are not lactose based milks. Therefore, they will not do the the cleansing process that we intentionally use animal milk for. And if somebody for some reason wanted to make their LAB without dairy, causing them to consider oat milk or bean milk, their real solution is just not to skip the milk step and and keep it with all of these other wild microbes in it. Just use it more, just use it faster. Well, yeah, well, to, to a degree, to agree, to a degree. Let me let me clarify that a little bit, because um, um, saying that, you know, like like 
so so to to go back a little bit, there is a way. Like Master Cho actually has a recipe in his his older book that I don't think's in publication anymore, but it talks about um, a preparation where you cook beans, and and then you put the beans plus water in a jar, and then you put that jar in your refrigerator, and after about a month, that is lab. So he's doing it with just straight up beans and and through this process where when you put it in a jar and you seal it that way, you create this anaerobic condition where lactobacillus is facultatively anaerobic, meaning it can live with or without oxygen. And so the cooked beans sitting in the water in this anaerobic environment in your fridge, the LAB will also predominate. And by that, you can also get a really pure LAB serum from bean milk type of thing. And, and this, this is similar for other nut milks, although I'm not like someone was asking me about almond milk the other day and I'm not like, I just, I just don't buy almond milk. So I, I haven't done the research myself to know. Right on. Fair enough. Fair enough. So the next listener question is how about fermenting mushrooms? Is there something like an FMJ or something like a fer- fermented mushroom juice? Yeah, you you t- if if your mushrooms are fresh, you could treat them just like um, plant you know plant material, and um, because mushrooms aren't very sweet, you don't need very much sugar. So probably like about a third of the weight of your mushrooms could be sugar, because they, they just they they're not sweet, um, and then that will extract them out, and you can make a fermented plant juice that way out of the mushrooms for sure. Um, and if your mushrooms are dried you could follow us a, a similar process to how we do it in the the medicine or the OHN recipe where we mix in beer to reconstitute them and then we act as if it was wet ingredients by fermenting after that right on um <clears throat> so i like this question lots of folks fail making their canf concoction the first time they make it sometimes we fail several times even experienced folks what can you do with your KNF failures? Let's say you make some FPJ and it gets moldy. Does it go in the compost pile? Same with the labs. If it goes wrong, can any of the stuff be repurposed or is it just tossed? Well, well to, to answer that specifically where you're saying you have an FPJ and then it goes moldy, if you're just talking about surface mold that's growing on the very, very top of the the jar and sometimes you get white wispy things sometimes like when I do ginger sometimes I get um, like green little films growing those things usually they're pretty um, inert and if you see that type of mold growing on top you can assume that your fermentation underneath is done and usually what I do in that instance is I just pour it off and then super saturate to preserve it so I, I'm not tossing those if, if there's a little mold or, or those things. And if it is molding, you know, maybe pull it earlier It's is what it, you know, it's what it's indicating to you because fermentation is complete. Um, but largely all, all my things that I fail with, um, that's what I go over to like the Jadam methods. So it's, it's Master Cho's son, um, Young Sung Cho, who basically developed a really ultra low cost way of doing things. And he'll take any of anything like plant material and just mix it with water in a bucket and let it get nasty and then dilute it enough that it it doesn't cause too many problems. Although although this this is where, you know, if, if you're into food safety or into medical grade cannabis and these things, 
you got to watch out. Like I'm not, I'm not saying like, this is your solution for that, but, but it's a way where, for instance, if you mess something up, you, you ferment it using these techniques that, that Young Song Cho promotes and then use it to bioremediate your local park, you know, like, like do, do some good for the community kind of thing with your mistakes, you know? Totally. My, my mistakes go to uh, the base of my trees and such in the yard, because, you know, there's a lot of this stuff I don't want to put on a cannabis plant that'll, you know, will eventually get smoked or, you know, turned into a tincture or something. Um, but, but it's also not worthwhile to like dispose of as if it's hazmat and, you know, you can put out something mediocre into the environment and the environment will be stoked. Yeah. And, and really, 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 it comes down to what, when it's a contaminate, it's, it really has to do with concentration in this case. And so, so if you're worried about, you know, it being a contaminant, spray some LAB on it and, and dilute it enough and, and, you know, that, that should take care of most, most problems. I love how we use adding, you know, spray LAB on it as a solution for like everything. It reminds <laughs> me of how everybody talks about CBD now, right? It's like, oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Just throw some lab on it. You'll be all good. <clears throat> oh, pre- pretty soon we're going to have gas station LAB. Yeah. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> next question is, um, a listener says, we have some areas uh, where we can get fish from for our FAA locally. Um, but those um, those waterways are runoffs from Syngenta and Monsanto farms. Are the fish safe to use or will there be residuals in the FAA to worry about? Have you done any testing to confirm um, whether or not there are any residuals in, in fish and how that may come out in the FAA? That that is that's an interesting question that definitely be studied more scientifically. I I wanna I wanna bring up a different instance of this where I I just I had some folks from Washington D.C. visiting me the other day and I opened up the fish and they were like you know I had I had a three month old batch and I had a year old batch and you could smell the difference between them the three three year old batch kind of or excuse me the three month old batch kind of smelled still a little fishy. But the year old batch smelled really smooth and sweet, like like, you know, you, you like it's hard. It's hard to describe smells through through, you know, but but there was a difference in it. And so what I was talking to them about is that one of my friends took his FAA that he had done this process. He sent it to a lab to do um, path pathogen testing. And they said that his LAB, the raw fish and sugar that was put in a bucket at room temperature, had less pathogens than most people's kitchens. So, so if you're thinking about it biologically, the answer of why that is the case is the fish amino acid itself has tons of lactic acid bacteria in it. And so these microbes, again, as we're talking throughout this show, they're as you get these microbes, they're not only processing out like the pathogens, but in your FAA, they can almost digest by the time you have a year old batch. And it's this smooth, fine tasting, fine, like cooking level of fish sauce. You end up where if the pathogens were processed through fermentation, I would also believe any runoff that's coming that's maybe like atrazine or, or glyphosate or any any of those types of things, they would also be disassembled by this same microbial set. Otherwise, the microbes would be inhibited and you wouldn't have them. 
you know, so, so by the time you're a year into it, it's like so much fermentation, so much smoothness has come that, that your real, your real contaminants should be very low. But I would love to take that claim I just made and then, you know, run it through a mass spectrometer. Yeah. Right. And, and, and get to know that the science is in support of, of your, your gut intuition. Yeah. And, and I just, I mean, I just don't have the, you know, if someone wants to go fund me for that, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> the last one of these uh, audience questions is from somebody who um, follows your YouTube channel that will plug in a bit and listens to your podcast. And <clears throat> they're curious to know from you, they say that they like your quality of information and they know that they can rely on it. They want to know if there are any other sources of information that um, you think are quite accurate as well that they should um, look into. De- definitely. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of good resources in Korean natural farming. Um, I, you know, one thing, one thing I want, I want to shout out Chris. I just, I just want to make sure, you know, that, you know, he he and I have been allies for a, for a long time, and and we we both both been to Korea to learn from Master Cho, and he's now in Boise, and he's offering classes that I that I think his his um his depth of understanding and his thing it, it's just the proof is in his pudding, so to say, like he's proved it out and and done it. So so um. So he has classes. He's been doing that stuff. He's putting out information. I think he's a reputable source. Um, in the Big Island, it used to be um, Kim Chang was was you know was my instructor and also you know now now a peer of mine. But but she recently had some medical issues, so she's harder to get access to. Um, and then I would I would reach out to to folks that have studied with Master Cho specifically, um, just just because. If if you're fault like, I don't, there there's there's a lot of different sources out there that have differing degrees of quality, which is which is a lot of the reason why I decided to call the stuff I'm doing pure KNF because I'm really following the 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 recipes Master Cho gave the philosophy my my years of study I'm I'm incorporating this, and and then there's other aspects of it where you can bring in these jadam techniques and these these other maybe lower cost techniques and blends and you got to find what works for you. But in terms of, you know, researching material, learning from folks, um, you know, I think any of the students that, that, that we've put out between Kim, Chris, myself, Master Cho, um, those, those folks are great. Um, here, here on the big Island in Hawaii, um, Logan is starting up the Holly Selassie, um, natural farming Institute. And he, he has been of, of all the, the people that I that I know personally, he's been going into the cannabis realm of just like beyond belief. You know, um, that that's his that's his jam, and he um, so his natural farming institute he's starting here. He's coming from more the esoteric, spiritual, you know, the the higher parts of the cannabis that it brings in. But he's he's a great resource. Um, yeah, so. Does that? Yeah, that's great. That kinda, and and yeah. I'm 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 assuming that anybody who's who's listening to with us, especially this far in the show, knows that when you refer to Chris, we're talking about Chris Trump, 
And uh, his his uh, website is naturalfarming.co. Um, but, you know, they're very likely some, you know, very possible somebody's listening to this episode and they just got turned on to Korean natural farming. And my God, if we just turned you on to Chris Trump, well, um, lucky you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so Drake, thank you so much for spending all this time with us and, and sharing your, your experience in such a, you know, a, a, a warm, calm and storytelling way. You know, it's, uh, I really enjoyed doing this show with you and, um, uh, it was nice to kind of poke at some of the parts at K- of KNF that, um, you know, that don't necessarily get, get covered in a, in a general, um, can of uh, recipes show. Right. So, so I appreciate your willingness to go down some of these unexpected paths. Well, well, thanks, Shango. Well, thanks again, Drake. And I look forward to chatting with you again and, and crossing paths in, uh, in person. Take care, brother. Cool. Aloha. So if you want to learn more about um, Eric Drake Weinert's um, educational opportunities, uh, the best place to start is at Pure knf.com. Um, that will tell you all about his available classes, when they start, where they are, and his speaking schedule. Um, he's also got a really great YouTube, and the, the easiest way to get to that is just to uh, search KNF video, and uh, you'll come across all sorts of things. And one of the things that I like about his YouTube channel is that not only are you getting the KF, KNF education, but um, dude lives on Hawaii, and um, it's just beautiful to see what's going on in the background and some of the exotic fruits that uh, that I would love to be using that that he uses on the YouTube channel as well. And we also want to make sure that we plug um, uh, uh, Drake's own podcast. That's the Microbial Secret Society. And that's available at microbialsecret.org. And then last but definitely not least, his absolutely gorgeous Instagram feed at uh, Natural Farming Hawaii. You get some idea of some of the techniques that they're teaching, you know, some of what's beautiful about Hawaii, some folks in his family. It's just, it's just a fantastic feed. And I don't know, I feel better about the world just following it. So for all of that stuff, uh, make sure you check it out at purecanf.com. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los. Mm-hmm.